Throughout history, we can find examples of powerful figures who claim to have a connection to a spirit realm many of the rest of us will never be able to truly access. The validity behind these figures, as well as their powers, remains the subject of debate in every culture. Sometimes these figures are purely fraudulent, not believing in any higher powers, but merely hoping to take advantage of the ill-informed or those desperate for answers. Grief and pain will make a believer out of some of the harshest of critics. And while some of these people lack the moral compass to back their values, others seem to have a genuine wish to help people and a belief in their abilities. This episode does have graphic depictions of murder, mutilation, brief mention of self-inflicted gunshot wounds, and other topics that may be sensitive for certain listeners. Those topics are not mentioned until near the end of the episode, though, so you're good up until that point, which I will remind you about. joining me today here in the rainy book nook. I'm your host Shelby, delivering your dose of the morbid, peculiar, and curious. Join me here every other week on Sunday. Episodes release at 10 a.m. Alaska time. As promised, this episode is going to start with a brief review of Violet Made of Thorns by Gina Chen. Before that, I'm going to read you the first chapter of it. Um, this book was a three out of five for me. I've, I've been kind of going back and forth on that, but I've, I've settled there just to forewarn you. It's not my usual book style, but I did enjoy it in the end. So um, after that, we're going to visit the world of soothsayers and psychics. And at the very end, I have a gruesome short story for you. I'm also recording on a different audio program this time. Uh, hoping for some better audio. I've been struggling with the sound that a lot of people say they don't hear. I hear it, it drives me crazy, so I'm hoping that it's gone on this one, and so far when I've played it back, we're good. So I'm, I'm hoping for good things. All right, let's get started and read this chapter here. Let's go. There is a really, really cool map that they drew of the the kingdom and, and the districts in the kingdom at the beginning of the book, which I always really love, so that's actually pretty cool. Okay, so before I read this, I do want to say that this is a young adult novel that has like a really heavy influence of sass and kind of like teen romance or whatever, so it's a little overwhelming at times. I, I don't remember if there's much of that in the first chapter, so I'm, I'm just kind of warning you. Um, okay. Today, Prince Cyrus returns to the capital with a bride, or else. From the Sears Tower, the tallest point in the sun capital, 
I can see a train of purple banners fluttering amid the fields outside the city, the royal caravan making the steep approach to the southern gates. Cordoned off crowds pack the streets, waiting to welcome their prince home. Six months have passed since Cyrus departed to tour the continent, since he set out to seek from the land and its generous people all the wisdom that he could not learn in a palace, or something like that. I stopped listening to his going-away speech midway through. Mostly, his tour was to find a bride, a solution to his curse. Cyrus didn't mention that in his speech. I know this because of his father, King Emilius, berated him afterward for the omission, and then I had to mention it in my speech a few days later when I announced that I dreamed a new prophecy. The best part about being seer isn't the tower or the amenities or the access to the king. It's how easily everyone believes what you say. The capital was less lively without his highness. I do miss those girls running amok trying to save him, says the peach-faced woman sitting at my divining table. I suppose that will change for good. He's chosen our next queen by now, hasn't he? If Cyrus has listened to me, he would have. He better, I mutter, turning from the window. Pardon? I said, he met her. I flash an enigmatic smile at my lone patron. With the caravan's return, I didn't expect anyone to visit my tower today. This woman has the weathering of someone too practical to line up for a peek at a royal face. A brimmed hat tan and calloused hands turned upward on the divining table's marble surface. If you speak of the prophecy I received before his highness left, my dreams told me Prince Cyrus will meet his bride before his journey's end. No more than that, no less. She nods. I didn't recall the exact words you used. The exact words are important. I paced this room for four nights to decide on those words, and I won't have them misremembered now when they finally matter. Picking up my robes, I take a seat across from her and push my heavy braid over my shoulder. The sooner this reading is over, the sooner this small talk can end, and I can leave for the palace and greet the prince myself. What is it that you want me to see? The woman's brow twitches. My curtness offends her, though she won't say so. My only concern is the harvest season, sighed Mistress Violet. Anything regarding my farm's future, I pray the fates be kind. I don't like doing these fortune readings, but the king insists I interact with the populace regularly, so they trust the girl behind their kingdom's prophecies. It was either this or matchmaking, and seeing buffoons in love makes me want to empty my stomach. I lay my hands over hers, and the brush of my fingers against her skin sparks something sunbright in my mind. I shut my eyes and focus on the grooves of her palm, the folds and scars, the blood that pumps underneath, any physical mark of her history that I can use to anchor my magic. In my mind's sight, I find the threads that bind her soul to the turning of this world. A hillside farm, golden with fay flowers. Rides to the sun capital, part of her monthly routine. A different farm in the borderlands. Family, a lover's home. The fairy wood looms on the horizon. Long days of fieldwork stretching into nights. And so they go. The clearest threads are ones that have already happened, her memories. Future threads, on the other hand, look hazy and can even be contradictory. The fates are fickle gods and fortunes are always changing. If I can't see the future directly, I might feel the fates' intentions instead. Foreboding feels like the wet gust before a storm. Opportunity like a dip into warm honey. But much of time, the fates don't like showing their hands. Not unless they mean to, anyway. My patrons have to deal with what little I see. I'm the only seer in the kingdom of Avani, the only choice they have. This is not a coincidence. There are nine known sighted in the world, every one of us in the employ of various courts. We're too useful to be left alone. I hear that one seer in you, in addition to her prophecies, can predict storms from the ripple of a pond, 
and another in Verdant knows the date of every birth. I'm the youngest seer at 18, plucked from the Sun Capital's very own streets seven years ago. All I know how to do is dream, read threads, and lie. I don't think you need to worry, I murmur as my sight peers into the fog of the woman's future. I embellish my vague visions with details from her memories. Your fay flowers should grow fine this year, but stay diligent. Don't wander so much, maybe, and keep to your farm. When I open my eyes, the woman withdraws her, her hands. Kind fates, that's very good to learn, she says. Anything else? I ramble until she's finally satisfied. Thanking me, she throws silvers into the dry fountain basin that's become a vessel for offerings and departs my tower. I peek over the fountain's scalloped rim and sigh. I don't rely on the coin since the palace provides everything I need, but under the previous seer, the fountain overflowed with offerings. Under my tenure, it's gotten dusty. And now that Cyrus has returned, my reputation will only get worse. The din outside rises and falls with cheers. I barely need to glance at the window to know the royal caravan is inside the city. The court has been scheming over Cyrus's homecoming practically since he left. King Emilius has grown more sickly, and Cyrus is expected to ascend to the throne before the end of the year. The time to make an attempt for his favor is now. My teeth grind. That goes for me, too. Seven years ago, sighted Mistress Felicita, stars guide her soul, uttered her final prophecy. The land will bloom red with blood and roses and war. The prince, his heart will be damnation or salvation. His choice may save us all. His bride, it is up to her. A curse, a curse, a cursed curse. Gods be wary. And that was all before she died. A maidservant who attended her sickbed claimed the seer's mouth was frozen wide, her fist clenched by her neck as if she had been fighting against someone in order to speak. Even in death, they couldn't uncurl her body. The kingdom plunged into paranoia. Was Felicita heralding the end of Avani? The end of the world? Why was Prince Cyrus the catalyst? I became the new seer after her death, but I was just a child then. A waif, play-acting in silk, confused as everyone else. I never dreamed of what Felicita described. My lack of answers didn't endear me to anyone. We saw aid from seers serving in neighboring lands and warned them in turn, but even they couldn't sense any coming omens. The grandmotherly seer of Balaka had us consider that perhaps, if Felicita wasn't simply fever-mad, it meant that whatever she saw was far in the future. We had time to prepare. Okay, I was going to read the whole chapter, but it's actually a little bit longer than I remembered, and I also... Um, basically, the rest of the chapter is the prince comes into the city, they have this overly sarcastic and pushy dialogue back and forth. And and that is, I would say that's what a good, like the first quarter of the book is her and this prince who is described as like this god of a man who's also somehow only 18 years old. Um, and they have this very intense relationship where they kind of like love hate each other and, that is probably my least favorite part of the book. I find that it has like the least amount of bearing on... <laughs> it's important to the story. Obviously their relationship is very important to the story, but personally I can do without like romance in a novel that is a dominating part of the plot. I can do without sassy, pretentious little assholes, but I I had an afterthought, like, this is a book that is a young adult novel. Young adult 
technically is like age like 14 or 15 up to age 20 to 25. If I had read this book as a teenager, I probably wouldn't see her as such a like shitty little brat. But um, I, I do want to say though, this is Gina Chen's first novel. And that to me is apparent, like it's a really good book. And I think for a first novel, it's an exceptional uh, first novel. And I, I'm definitely going to read because it's this is number one. So I'm definitely going to read the next book. Um, I, I just, you know, it's not really my typical style of book. For one, I don't usually read fantasy books like this. If I do read fantasy, it's it's a, a much different kind, more like Lord of the Rings style stuff, which, I mean, not to say there's not like some crazy magic elements to that, it's just a little bit different, but basically, you know, Violet is, she's the seer of this kingdom, and she came to the kingdom at a very young age, and she has this faded relationship with the prince, because before becoming seer, you know, as you see, or what I just read, is that she became the seer after the previous one died, but she had lived in this kingdom for years before. She actually saved the prince from dying at a young age, and that becomes kind of like sort of the main plot point throughout the rest of the book is that she really wasn't supposed to save him, and now she's defied the fates. And as we know, when you defy the fates, they get pissed off. Like I said, this is not typically the style of book that I'll read, but the reason that I bought it actually is I was checking out at Barnes and Noble and the cashier did like an exceptional job of delivering the plot to me. I wish I could remember their speech because I could have saved you guys a lot of time. I know that I just rambled through that and if it made any sense at all, I'm lucky. With young adult books, like I can usually skate by on a, like a really fast paced young adult thriller because a thriller is a thriller. Like eh, this one, it's a little bit different, you know? It, it appeals to a different aspect of, of the young adult genre. So, you know, the book did keep my attention. I wasn't ever bored. I just found Violet's like sassy inner dialogue to be over the top at times. You know, sometimes it was really funny. Other times it was like, girl, you are literally hindering the progress of this story because you have to have like funny little one-liners every five seconds. And it's that whole concept of two people that really want to rip each other's clothes off, but they're being written as hating each other and having to say like terrible things to each other until they finally decide that, you know, so that's, that's it. It is a first novel. And so while I feel like the most important parts of the plot were very well developed, I also appreciate that she did kind of leave some things um, open-ended uh, in terms of like their personal relationships and things like that. It definitely gives her a lot of room to go in whatever direction she wants in the next novel, which I appreciate. Overall, I would say the book is silly, whimsical, maybe a little bit corny, but it is an easy read with a plot that will keep your attention as well. So if you're trying to meet a book quota for the year, pop Violet Made of Thorns in there, you should be able to read through it pretty fast. It's fun, not anything incredibly serious, um, but there are some pretty crazy twists in it. Like it is a good story in that sense. There's a, a twist probably about halfway through that I absolutely in no way could have possibly predicted. So props to that. Um, other than one like vaguely described sex chapter, is it 
sex scene or sex chapter if it's in a book. Anyway, aside from that, I'd say this is a really solid book to give to like your teen family member who's really into fantasy novels. That even the ending was like, oh my god, are you serious? Like she's she's being that way right now. But at the same time, I did I did kind of laugh and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to read the next one. So right before that twist, I did kind of find myself assessing if I really even wanted to finish it because of her inner dialogue being like I said, like a little over the top at times. But I finished it and I'm glad I did. I, I recommend it for sure. As much as I felt like the character was overly sassy, I, I do have to say that as the story heats up, she does sort of find the will to be more serious. Um, <laughs> most of the time, you know, but not all the time. Uh, okay, well, moving on, let's talk about Sears. Throughout history, there are heaps of stories of seers or soothsayers. Some of them are fictional, like obviously fictional, and others are purportedly true, at least in the eyes of some diehard believers. Some are extremely famous, like Nostradamus and the Oracle of Delphi, and many whose fortunes never rang true. Uh, and instead, the person was exposed as a fraud, like Jerron Criswell, who is famous for his many failed predictions as American psychic, the amazing Criswell. Criswell, I'm not sure if it's Criswell or Criswell. Uh, he was born in 1907 and lived in 1982. So uh, I guess a lot of his predictions that are fraudulent. He actually died before they were supposed to come to fruition, which saved him a lot of embarrassment. I did find someone that I found very, very interesting and who there is a lot of information about. Okay, so Edgar Casey. He was born in 1877 to parents Leslie B. Casey and Carrie Casey in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. In his entire career, he did over 14,000 readings. Many people spoke fondly of him, saying that he offered like generally sound medical advice. Uh, he was a big fan of things like a balanced diet, eating locally grown produce, exercise, drinking water, things a doctor would definitely recommend today. Casey was not a medical doctor, but he did have friends who were, and actually for several years during his readings, he had one of his friends, Al Lane, as his stenographer and arguably helping with medical advice. On the surface, we see a man who, as a child, claimed to be able to induce out-of-body experiences and visit afterlife realms. Okay, there is a lot to unpack there. What most people know about Casey is that he gave his readings in a very non-traditional way. You came into his, his office and instead of you laying down on the couch and telling him your problems, he laid down, went to sleep or entered a trance-like state and would begin to like make predictions about your future based on questions being given to him during this trance-like state. Uh, as well as sometimes he would apparently receive a letter from the client prior to the reading and would, would go into it with this information and make predictions based on that information. Like I said, he is known in some circles for being a quiet man who had good intentions and offered light medical advice that is advice that would be generally accepted today. He primarily did his readings for free and offered them to people who needed his help with relatively minor problems but he is someone who claimed to have a connection to a universal consciousness which provided him these powers, so yes, of course, he also had some predictions of wild 
and epic proportions. He evidently correctly predicted the stock market crash of 1929, the start of World War II and the beginning players in it, the beginning of the pull shift, and a few other highly notable predictions. Sure, in 14,000 readings, he's bound to get some things right, but that's still very interesting to read about. However, what I personally enjoyed reading about was the very, very strange predictions he made, some of which have passed and already proven false, others yet to come. He was also very religious, and a lot of his prophecies are not him being a religious prophet himself, but he has a lot of crazy theories about like Jesus and other parts of religion that are just, that I think even a lot of religious people would probably reject, but I don't know. He predicted that a lost city of gold would be found in the Gobi Desert, containing a temple with electric cars, elevators, and other magical elements. If you've seen Logan's Run, that's what I'm envisioning. And if you have not seen Logan's Run, you should definitely watch that movie. It is so much fun. It's it's very like sci-fi, futuristic. I think it came out in the 70s, so I feel like that's all you need to know about it. Just go into it blind. I believe in you. Oh, but it gets crazier. Casey also believed in the lost city of Atlantis and held strongly to the idea that the people of Atlantis were technologically superior even to modern humans. In Atlantis, according to Casey, there were elevators and tunnels operated by compressed air, as well as that Atlanteans possessed a high skill level of material crafting and things like crystal work. Even better, that Atl Atlanteans had laser technology. Uh, there's some crazy artwork of that, which I'll include in the post on Instagram. He said they possessed a giant laser-like, or sorry, giant laser-like crystals <laughs> fueling their power plants. It's a giant beam shooting straight up from this huge crystal. Um, wild stuff. Unfortunately, this is where the more extreme side of Casey's religious views also come in, and he begins to lay out the idea that Atlantis's decline was a result of a war between the children of the Law of One and the Sons of Belial. So, good and evil, pretty much. The children of the Law of One wanted to return Atlantis to a pure spiritual state, and the Sons of Belial wanted to exploit Atlantis's bounty of resources for material gain. Also, according to Casey, the famous flood in the Bible was caused by the last piece of Atlantis submerging as the remaining Atlanteans made their mass exodus to Egypt. There are a lot of people who still support Casey's outlandish claims, and they get even more convoluted than what I've mentioned here. There is a whole website that I found that is all of his like religious prophecies, and some of them are very, very weird. I think he definitely helped a lot of people with what sounds like some like wholesome health advice, but it's a little scary how influential people can be even decades after their passing. Like I said, there are still people who are still in pursuit of his claims of Atlantis and his other uh, religious-based claims about things like the second coming of Jesus. And while I at first saw him as some average guy interested in the metaphysical side of life, doing not a whole lot more than dozing on his couch in front of a patient and telling them they needed to put down the sugar and drink more water, I learned that Edgar Cayce had a mind that would not be tethered to earthly confines. 
It's just too bad he didn't become a sci-fi writer instead. All right, and for the final part of the episode, I want to read to you a little story I wrote sort of on the fly. Simultaneously, my favorite and least favorite part of short stories is in the name. They're short. What I dislike about that is I struggle to develop a well-rounded story sometimes that also delivers an impactful plot. But what I love about them is that they accelerate rapidly and before you know it, the plot is being wrapped up in a neat little bow and it's already over. When I write a short story, I do it all in one sitting usually, especially when I do it for the podcast. I just kind of sit down and I see what happens, force myself to come up with it as I go. And sometimes that leaves me feeling how I feel with this one, which is that it's a lot of fun, but I feel like there are some plot holes or that maybe it's not as good as it could be. But that's what this is all about, which is having fun and just seeing what comes out. So, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I want to remind you that this story does contain, near the end, mostly some pretty graphic descriptions of death, um, a little bit of bodily decomposition, brief mention of self-inflicted gunshot wound. Literally, it's just one sentence. And murder. Dane Idris lived in Snowshoe, Pennsylvania for his entire life on a farm that had been in his family for multiple generations. On this farm, nestled on the edge of town, was a beautiful 19th century farmhouse, coupled with an extension added on in the mid-1980s by his parents. This house, big and strong, was visible from the road that was commonly used by commuters who lived in the Snowshoe Township and were coming home from work in the bigger cities. People would often talk about the Idris farmhouse, admiring the bricklaying of the original house as well as the craftsmanship of the addition added on by Dane's father. They would say, that Idris house has good bones. If only they understood the irony of that statement. That house has bones all right, but not good ones, not how you want them. Nobody knew much about the Idris family because they homeschooled their children for generations, so none of the kids ever had friends at the local schools that they would bring home to meet the family. Business dealings in the community were minimal, the family was relatively self-sufficient, and to pay for utilities, which they only did because they wanted to keep the nosy assholes in town off their backs, they bit their tongues to spend one singular day a month at the farmer's market. What they lacked in the ability to engage in small talk with their customers, they made up for with the best produce the townsfolk had ever had. It was always huge, juicy, and vibrant. Even in the years that the other local farmers struggled against bad weather and other environmental factors, the Idris family's produce remained superior. That is, until Dane was the head of the household. Living alone now on the farm since the passing of his parents and their old age, Dane struggled to maintain the facade that protected the Idris farm from prying eyes. He had never gotten married, never had any kids to ensure the continuation of the Idris legacy, and beyond that he could not hide his evil like the generations before him did. Without his father's guidance, Dane was worthless. One day, a local construction company was doing work to prepare for a new building in Snowshoe, clearing trees and doing excavation in the woods behind the Idris farm. The town was small, but it was getting bigger as the neighboring cities got too overpopulated and people started spreading out to find cheaper land and housing. This land had previously remained uninhabited and was an extension of the woods on the Idris farm, but had since been purchased by a gas company that would be installing a service station in the area. On the first day the crew arrived, one of the workers reported back to their supervisor that Dane had come out to the edge of his property line and sat staring at them, 
nothing but blackness behind his eyes. Dane stood six foot three inches tall, black hair disheveled and greasy, and a long, pale face. It was also observed by the crew that Dane was emaciated to a point of seeming inhuman. He did not move, he did not pace around, he stood and waited until the crew went home for the day. This went on for a week, and each day the crew continued to work while Dane sat there and watched. Finally, on the Monday following a hot and sunny summer weekend, the crew returned bright and early. Something was different today though. Dane wasn't standing there watching like he had been every day before. The crew was relieved. They could finally work without that ghoul of a man staring them down. While they had been on the property for several days beforehand, all they had been doing was brush removal and cutting down trees. No type of excavation or digging to level the ground had been done yet. That's what they were here to start that day. However, it wasn't but an hour after they had arrived and started digging that chaos broke out. In a section of the property about a mile from Dane's official property line, the excavator had barely broken the ground surface before it was picking up debris. The electric blue of a tattered tarp hooked the excavator's bucket. Before anyone could take a second look, as the bucket went down to pick up more dirt, out of that tarp tumbled the decaying remains of what appeared to be a human hand and part of a forearm. Workers standing nearby started screaming at the excavator to stop immediately, and in a blur of fear, the workers hurried to leave the property and to alert the authorities. See. Remember how the Idris family always grew the best produce in the area? How it was always vibrant, juicy, hearty despite the odds? The Idris family was in the fertilizer business as well. Only, they didn't sell their fertilizer. No, that might get them in trouble. People might start asking what's inside. But what they could do with that fertilizer. I think their produce was so good, people would rather not ask why it was so good. That was Dane's family. He wasn't able to keep up. Dane was never married, but it's hard to marry when your family business is turning transients into fertilizer and growing the most succulent produce around. Dane's parents kept it all in the family. His mother and father were second cousins, so there was no explanation necessary. Dane's mother and father, as a result of their genetic makeup and subsequent health issues, struggled to have children, and after Dane's birth nearly killed his mother, they decided to be grateful it was a boy they were not going to try again. They taught him everything, how to choose the right material, and that he must make sure they don't have a soul in the universe who will miss them and want to find them. They were in the business of cleaning up the transients of the area, homeless people or hitchhikers on the highway nearby. But Dane showed a penchant for the violent side of the business, and could honestly not give a shit less about also running and taking care of a farm. He was more than willing, excited even, to assist in procuring a sample. But when it came down to making use of the remains, he would often push that off onto his father. When his parents passed, Dane continued to clean up, but became lazy about what happened after. He stopped caring for the crops, and after what would be the final harvest, Dane would let the land become overgrown with weeds. He yearned to kill, but struggled to dispose of the bodies after. Not because he didn't want to deal with it, he just didn't know what to do with them. His father had only ever taught him the ways of the business, not what to do if you don't use the remains. When the idea came to him to use the lot that neighbored his land, he thought surely that would work for now, he could do something with the bones later. 
Dane was not able to do this for long either, as he started to become weak and malnourished, with both a lack of income and of food growing on the farm like it had in years prior. The police were able to deduce that he mostly ate small animals that he could hunt in the woods close to the time of his death because of the massive amount of tiny little bones and the trash in the home. People around Snowshoe have surely also whispered the words, do you think he ate them too? But that was never confirmed. When the construction company alerted the authorities on that sweltering summer day in Snowshoe, they could never have known the sheer magnitude of the case that would rock the town that summer. The week that Dane stood watching the construction company would have been the last week of his life. For months beforehand, Dane was not eating right, did not see a doctor or another person for that matter aside from his victims, and was slowly dying as a result. When the police arrived at the scene of the crime, they uncovered the bodies of five different people in that tarp. Three men and two women ranging from age 19 to 48. Thankfully, through dental records, the bodies were all able to be identified, but there was no family to tell, no closure to give. Nobody reported any of them as missing. Dane had done his due diligence in ensuring that those people would never be missed by anyone alive. Dane became their primary and soon after their only suspect following the discovery due to the crew telling police that Dane had stood there for days watching them dig, like he was waiting for them to find what they had found. Police would attempt to interview Dane, but immediately upon setting foot upon his porch, an odor emanated from the house that could only be one thing. A combination of scents mimicking fish, jet fuel, and mothballs. The smell of fresh death. Inside the home, they would find Dane in his bed, recently deceased of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, and due to the heat outside, his decomposition process was accelerated. You want me to sit here and say the home was littered with putrid trash? that hairy mold grows on every surface, and that the windows are lined with the filmy residue of years of chain-smoking cigarettes. Well, aside from the animal bones in the kitchen, the house was spotless. Detectives would find out why after reading the final entry in Dane's journal, dated for two days prior. The ink was smeared like he had been crying over it as he wrote it. It said, there's a construction crew out where I hit everyone, and at first I wanted to make a scene or something to get them to stop because I was afraid, but then I realized that they were setting me free, free from this farm and free to come home. I watched them every day for a week. I wanted to see it happen. It's going to be Saturday tomorrow, and they're probably not going to come out again until Monday. I don't think I can wait for any longer. I, I know it's going to happen, and I just want to go home. I want to go to my real home. I, I cleaned the house for you guys. I set the table so when we all come home we can have a family dinner just like we always did. We'll drown out the cries with laughter just like we always did. I'm sorry I couldn't take care of the farm without you guys. I can't wait to see you again. 
The rest of the journal was filled with what Dane titled Talks with Mother and Father, and appeared to be a series of exchanges that psychologists would later come to the conclusion of being Dane pretending to have conversations with the souls of his deceased parents. And in those conversations, Dane would discuss the family business and explain that he was not doing it as they had taught him to, or rather that he wasn't doing it at all. Investigators tore up nearly every inch of ground on the farm and much of the surrounding areas and never found any other bodies aside from the five that the construction crew uncovered. But inside the home, detectives found what they believed to be keepsakes of their victims, such as hair clips, jewelry, and items of clothing. In the basement of the home was a filing cabinet next to a workstation with a decade's worth of dust on it. In this filing cabinet, the investigators found the instructions to make the Idris fertilizer, bone meal recipes, as well as multiple forms of identification of their presumed victims in a lockbox inside the cabinet. This evidence, coupled with Dane's journal, allowed investigators to deduce that for several decades prior to the Idris family, that for several decades prior, the Idris family had been luring victims into their trap, turning them into fertilizer to grow into their bountiful and unrivaled produce that they then sold to their very own community. A shockwave was sent through the town as they realized that many of them had consumed the produce grown by the Idris family. Some folks would eat only Idris family produce before the decline of the farm. Nothing could have prepared them for the horror that lay just outside of their town. And knowing that the only thing that saved them was being in a community where everyone knows everyone. That's going to wrap up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you all know that I am genuinely grateful for each and every one of you who listen and share the podcast it's becoming something so much more exciting than i could have imagined and i i just couldn't do it without your support so thank you so much um just so you guys know there is a q a spot at the bottom of each episode where you can let me know what you think and if you haven't left a review or a rating on whatever you're listening on that would really mean a lot Like I said in the last episode, it helps me know how you guys feel about the show, and it lets other people know who haven't seen it yet if they want to watch it or not. For the next episode, we're going to be discussing a topic I've been really looking forward to, which is liminal spaces or the back rooms. Uh, My good friend Laszlo has been recommending this topic, and I'm super excited to dive in. I'll see you all next time in the library that no one leaves. (laughs) 